Welcome to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. I'm your host, Timmy G, providing your weekly dose of insight and inspiration for mental and emotional well-being. Are you ready for your weekly brain bath? Let's go. Mental health news from around the globe. Welcome to Talk. I'm your host, Timmy G. From Global News, the World Health Organization has said it will include gaming disorder in a June update to its International Classification of Diseases, defining it as a pattern of behavior characterized by impaired control over gaming, increased priority given to gaming over other activities to the extent that gaming takes precedence over other interests and daily activities and also a continuation or escalation of gaming despite the occurrence of negative consequences. A diagnosis would recognize significant impairment in personal, family, social, educational, occupational, and other important areas of functioning would normally have been evident for at least 12 months. CAMH study released in 2016 estimated 13% of Ontario residents or almost 123,000 kids, have experienced symptoms of a video gaming problem, which was up from 9% in 2007. About one in five boys reported having problematic symptoms linked to their video gaming. The World Health Organization has been studying the issue since 2014, while the American Psychiatric Association has flagged internet gaming disorder for further study and consideration in its Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. That's since 2013, but they have not yet moved forward with any official updates. They are two of the main groups the medical community in Canada looks to for guidance on diagnosing and treating patients. Professor Jeffrey Deverensky, director of the International Center for Youth Gambling at McGill University, consulted with the World Health Organization in preparing the upcoming release and says video game addiction is clearly a growing problem. It may not have the same prevalence as some other disorders, but I get a call at least once every two weeks from a parent who says, I can't get my son off his computer or I can't get him off his cell phone because all he wants to do is play these games. Deverensky goes on to say there have been a number of instances where individuals have actually committed suicide because they weren't able to have access to their computer for gaming. He suspects the DSM will eventually include video game addiction as well, although the process to update the guidelines moves very slowly. The last update in 2013 was 14 years in the making. Calgary native Carmen Adair is a reformed gaming addict who has turned his recovery into a full-time business called GameQuitters.com. It offers a how-to ebook and one-to-one coaching along with free resources. The 29-year-old's work to help others break the cycle of addiction was recognized last year by CAMH, which included Adair on a list of Canadian difference makers in mental health. Adair believes the spotlight the World Health Organization is putting on video game addiction will be crucial in legitimizing the issue and getting more help for young people. He says there's a lot of resistance around this being an addiction 
And I think that comes from just a lot of misinformation. I get emails from parents every single day who say they have taken the Xbox away and now their kid is threatening to commit suicide. We need to be sensitive that there's people out there struggling, they're losing relationships, they're failing out of college, they're losing their families and their kids. This is a significant thing, and if they want support, let's give it to them. Lisa Pont says there's a lot of confusion about how to get help for a video game addiction, but a good starting point is speaking to a family doctor. She is a social worker at CAMH in Toronto. Among the treatment options in Ontario are counseling at CAMH and an inpatient video game and internet dependency program at Hotel Du Grace in Windsor, Ontario. She says it's also worth considering that in many cases, video game addiction may be a symptom of underlying issues. For most people, where there's addiction, there's something they are trying to soothe. Whether it's a clinical issue like depression, or even other issues like relationship conflict or poor self-esteem, there's always an underlying issue. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. This from National Public Radio. The neuroscientist who lost her mind returns from madness. One spring morning in 2015, Barbara Lipska got up as usual, dyed her hair, and went for a jog in her suburban Virginia neighborhood. But when she returned from a much longer-than-expected run, Her husband, Mirek, was completely taken aback. Lipska says, I was lost in my own neighborhood. The hair dye that I put in my hair that morning dripped down my neck. I looked like a monster when I came back home. Although she now lucidly recalls that moment, at the time she was oblivious to her unusual appearance and behavior. Lipska studies the neuroscience of mental illness and brain development at the National Institute of Mental Health. In her work, she's examined the molecular structure of the brains of people who are so afflicted with schizophrenia or other disorders that they took their own lives. And for two months in 2015, she developed similar symptoms of dementia and schizophrenia, only to learn they were the effects of cancerous tumors growing in her brain. A melanoma that had spread there caused the scientists to have personally contend with the kind of ordeals and anxieties encountered by those whose brains she'd studied in the safe confines in her lab. Lipska survived, and with journalist Elaine McArdle, has written a book about her illness and recovery called The Neuroscientist Who Lost Her Mind, My Tale of Madness and Discovery. Lipska learned a very important message, which she knew all along, that mental illness is a brain disease. It is not some ephemeral thing like a weak will or lack of willpower. It's not how she was brought up or what her family she had. It is a brain disease and it needs to be treated like any other disease. What it means is we need to find the mechanisms. We don't know what causes it. We know it's in the brain and it's a physical change in the brain. If you want to check out her book, you can find it online. Again, that's called The Neuroscientist Who Lost Her Mind. My Tale of Madness and Recovery, Barbara Lipska. Heading over to newswire.ca, the Canadian Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health has announced its 2018 Champions of Mental Health. Each year following a national open nomination process, the Alliance selects individuals and organizations as champions 
who are recognized for their outstanding contributions to mental health in Canada. Campaign Chair Fred Phelps They had so many incredible nominations this year, many inspiring stories from all across the country, and it was a very challenging process to pick the winners, but they are as follows. And these people will be presented their awards at a gala dinner on May 8th in Ottawa. Sharon Johnson, Champion of Mental Health Award for Youth, will be given out to Kristen Legault-Donkers, who has written and published four books, the Children's Mental Health Series. She has an intimate knowledge of the confusion and frustrations that come from growing up with various mental health challenges. And she's converted her Children's Mental Health Series into an educational package that has been used at schools in London, Ontario. The Media Award will be handed out to Tracy Melcher, who is involved in Canadian broadcasting. She's also a single mother of twins and a cancer survivor. She has always been able to boldly articulate her ongoing struggle with mental health illness, and through her work with Bell Media brings her message and narrative that it's okay to not be okay. The Community Award individual category is going to Jose Perron, who set out to address transitional housing for young people aged 18 and 35 who live with mental illness. She created an organization called Mon Chac, the first organization of its kind in the eastern townships where there is a lack of access to resources. Mon Chac provides bilingual services and will open a new building in June of this year. The Community Award Organization category goes to the British Columbia Aboriginal Network on Disability Society. It is a cross-disability organization that routinely works with individuals and families living with mental illness. The work includes the ongoing effects of residential schools, racial discrimination, addictions, PTSD, and other forms of mental illness. The organization strives to reduce barriers and bring awareness to the value and contributions that persons living with disabilities, including those living with mental illness, bring to their communities. Researcher or clinician, this award is going to Dr. Stanley Kutcher, whose work has had a significant impact on improving mental health care for youth and families. His initiatives include the development and implementation of the Mental Health and High School Curriculum Guide, the first resource of its kind in Canada, which has now been implemented in schools across the country. He also produced Transitions, Making the Most of Your Campus Experience, the first of its kind to address the transition into post-secondary education. This was rolled out in the Atlantic provinces in 2017. The Parliamentarian Award is going to Majid Jahari, Member of Parliament for Richmond Hill, been a staunch advocate for mental health in Canada. He drafted and introduced legislation to change the criminal code to taking mental health information into account and founded and chaired the Liberal Mental Health Caucus, and also later the Parliamentary Mental Health Caucus, reaching across party lines to bring mental health to the forefront of discussion on Parliament Hill. And the award for workplace mental health is going to Linda Corkum. She's a longtime supporter of workplace safety and mental health and has recognized the need to provide mental health education and training through her role as executive director at the Nova Scotia Trucking Safety Association. There, she brought in the Working Mind program, making it the first trucking association in Canada to implement the program. 
The Canadian Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health was established in 1998 to ensure that mental health is placed on the national agenda so that persons with a lived experience of mental illness and their families receive appropriate access to health care. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. In 2017, CFRC Radio celebrates 95 years of creating Campus Community Radio in Kingston, Ontario. Over the last 95 years, CFRC's governance has evolved. Once supervised by Queen's University and later by Queen's Alma Mater Society, since 2014, CFRC has been an independent, self-governing, not-for-profit organization. Its board of directors has representation from Queen's University, the AMS and SGPS, CFRC Radio Club, and the Kingston Community. Learn more about CFRC, Canada's longest-running campus and community radio station at cfrc.ca. AMHS KFLA's vocational services connect employers with skilled workers recovering from mental health challenges. This free program offers individual assessments, job preparation training, and placement. Employers are matched with qualified, reliable workers and receive ongoing support for hires as they lead their lives in positive new directions. For more information, call 613-544-1356 or visit amhs-kfla.ca. Let's get personal. Our talk feature interview. CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. And if you want to check out past episodes of Talk, simply go to our website, cfrc.ca, check on the Listen tab, search archives Wednesdays, 4 p.m. You can find all that you need there. Today's interview actually is a replay of an interview I did with Megan Van Massenhoven from Good to Talk. This was aired earlier in January. And it's good information, and I will be playing it again today. We will have a series of new interviews starting next week. Uh, Good to Talk is an organization that serves post-secondary students dealing with various stress-related issues, mental health challenges. They have a hotline that provides free confidential counseling services. So here it is, my interview with Megan from Good to Talk. Today I'm pleased to welcome Megan Van Massenhoven. She's Outreach Manager for an organization called Good to Talk. Megan, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. So what is Good to Talk, and what are the circumstances uh, surrounding its inception? So Good to Talk is a student helpline. Um, So it's a number that any university or college student in Ontario can call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, And they can speak with a professional counselor, get information about services on or off campus. It's completely anonymous, uh, completely free. Okay. And did did some particular situation happen? I understand this started back in 2013, or was it 2014? Yeah, it started in 2013. So some of the work for developing the helpline came about in the two or three years prior to that. Um, But basically, it's part of Ontario's larger mental health and addiction strategy. So making sure that uh, people in the province of Ontario have the supports they need and can access mental health services 
And part of that strategy specifically outlines the need for mental health services and supports on campuses, um, seeing that post-secondary students are often, you know, going through this transition from high school to university, maybe they're living on their own for the first time, and they're dealing with a lot of new independence uh, and a lot of new um, different commitments on their schedule and dealing with the stress of being a student. So they just really saw that this was a very uh, high-needs group uh, age group um, and developed the helpline to sort of help them get support in the moment and access other services. Okay. And you recently conducted a survey. Was this Is this the first survey of its kind based on the work that Good to Talk does? Yeah, it's the first survey uh, Good to Talk has ever done to really better understand uh, the challenges students are facing. So there might be other student mental health or health surveys done by universities or colleges themselves. Um, but this is our opportunity to understand what students uh, deal with and where they go when they need help. Okay. And I'm excited to hear the results because this issue is so critical and it's not going away anytime soon. So what did you, what did you find? So we found that uh, students listed their five biggest stressors as academics, uh, career, body image, finances, and dealing with relationships. So that's something that, based on what we've seen students call about on the helpline for the last few years, that's also pretty in line with what we already knew, but it just confirmed to us that these are really important uh, topics and issues that are uh, weighing on students sometimes. Um, we also found as well that a lot of students, 72% um, of Ontario students, told us that they would consider or try to manage an issue themselves. Um, so we asked them, when you're dealing with some of these stressors, uh, what might you do? And a lot of them did say that, you know, they try and manage it on their own, um, which is really interesting for us uh, to know that maybe that could be because, you know, they want to be independent, um, they want to think that they can handle something by themselves, or maybe they just don't know that there are options and services available to support them with whatever they're dealing with. With that 72% number of, of students wanting to try to deal with things on their own, I guess how do you as an organization, how do you break down the impetus behind that for each person? If it's mm -hmm. somebody who doesn't doesn't have any skills and that's why they're dealing with it on mm -hmm. their own, like you said, or do you drill down during a phone call, if you will, or, or, or questioning to try to get at the root of that? Yeah, I think moving forward, we, we want to aim to better understand why that is, um, the motivation behind it, because as you mentioned, it would potentially be different for every person. Uh, one of the things we know, maybe more anecdotally, we do a lot of outreach on campuses, um, and initially we were surprised by how often students asked us if it was okay to call if it's just school stress or if it's just a minor issue. And so we kind of realized that a lot of people maybe they associate the term helpline with crisis or distress line exclusively. Um, and so we really tried to make sure that when we market to students and when we go out and do events and tell them about the helpline, that we reiterate as much as possible that if it's something you're dealing with, it is a big deal and we're there to help with it. There's no, um, you know, we don't ask people what they're dealing with and then say, oh, that's too small, we're not going to help you. Um, we're really there for absolutely anything. We get you know, calls that relate to crisis and distress, but we also get lots of people who call just to talk about a struggle they're having with their roommate, 
um, and that they're not sure what to do. So it really is uh, any issue you're dealing with, big or small, we're there to support you with. I think that's wonderful because a lot of situations in life that come up for students or even adults, there are situations that maybe start small and if we don't feel that we can ask for help or we don't have a a reliable source for seeking help, we maybe just get into the habit of continuously, I'll just deal with this on my own and then we don't really effectively deal with it and then it there's residual stuff there and it builds and then it becomes a crisis. So I think it's great that you're, it's, it's open to kind of any situation and you're willing to be there to lend an ear and provide some guidance. That's great. Yeah. And as I mentioned, we do of course uh, speak with students that are always there to support students dealing with crisis or distress um, or something like suicide. But ideally we'd love to hear from them before that and know that we can kind of help them uh, mitigate those stressors before they become crisis situations. And how were you, if I can ask, how were you able to, um, how did you disseminate the survey? How were you able to go about conducting it and collecting your results? So I mentioned earlier, you know, we do have a couple of years of data from the helpline itself. So we know what students are calling about. We have a bit of information on demographics like Uh, their age or where in the province they're located. Um, But what we really wanted to get at was both the students who maybe have called us, but also those who don't or don't know about us. Um, So we used a market research agency um, who recruited an online uh, panel of Ontario students age 17 to 30 um, and processed all that data for us. So they made sure um, that we were getting kind of uh, the number of responses we were looking for, and that they fell within that specific population. Any other results or, uh, from the survey that you think are pertinent to what we discuss here uh, on talk and and uh, the campus environment in general? I think one of the other things we really wanted to understand was not just what students themselves are dealing with, but what they see in their campus communities. So. Do they also see that their friends are having issues uh, or negative experiences relating to these uh, stressful issues they've identified? So we found that three out of four students had a close friend who experienced at least one of the issues we already mentioned. Okay. Um, And of that group, 45% of them responded that they didn't really know what to do or how to help their friend in that moment. And that's really interesting for us because, one, it shows that um, they see their friends dealing with similar issues. and that they might not know how to help them. And so uh, though we often get students who call us because they have an issue they're dealing with, they want to talk to a counselor, because we can also tell them about services on and off campus, we can also be a helpful resource to help someone support their friend going through a challenge. If they don't know what services are available on campus, they could give us a call and we could let them know, and then they could share that information as well. Okay. And does your data indicate whether males or females are accessing your service uh, in greater numbers? or mm-hmm. So what we have seen pretty consistently on the Good to Talk helpline for the last few years is roughly uh, about 70% of our callers are female, about 30% are male. Um, there's a small proportion that either don't tell us their gender um, or identify as gender fluid. Um, but for the most part, it's about that 70-30 split, which, you know, ideally we would love to see it closer to a 50-50, but we also know from other helplines and other youth services that um, often the proportion of females might even be higher than that. So that kind of leads us to think that potentially um, that we'd love to have them reach out more, that 
uh, university and college students uh, who are male might actually be maybe a little bit more open to calling a service like Good to Talk than some of their high school or elementary school counterparts. And um, when I started the the show talk in September, I featured an article on the first show that was from, I think it was May of last year, from the Toronto Star just talking about how the demand for youth mental health services on in college and university campuses had skyrocketed and organizations, institutions were, were scrambling to hire more staff to keep up with the demand. From your vantage point, the work that you guys do and having such a, an ear to the ground on hearing from students directly, why do you think this, this uh, increase has blown up in the way that it has at this time in our culture and history, if you will? That's kind of a big question, but what mm-hmm. few things could you share on that angle? So I think we see that students today who call us often are kind of presenting more than one uh, issue on their plate. It's usually two or three, even four or five things that they're dealing with. Um, and the combination of those things can be really stressful. So I think there's a lot of pressures on students. Um, they're dealing with a lot of newfound independence. Um, there's new uh, relationships they're navigating, both in person and also online, things like social media. Um, can have an impact on the way they perceive their own success as well. Um, and so I think really, you know, seeing this kind of new, um, being a young person today and dealing with this can be a lot. Uh, so that is definitely something that is difficult and maybe has increased over the years. I also think we can see maybe more and more, while there's still lots of stigma out there about talking about mental health and accessing mental health services, it is becoming a bit louder of a conversation. Um, So potentially that could actually be encouraging to young people um, that they're seeing it maybe a little bit more, hearing it discussed a little bit more, and maybe a little bit more cognizant of their own mental health, maybe a bit more willing to access services. So on one hand, while we do see this demand has really gone up and it's very concerning, we also don't want to discourage people um, from reaching out. It's also kind of a good thing to us to see that more and more people are calling us because hopefully it means that they're getting the help they need um, before something becomes a massive issue. Yeah, that's key. I, I feature a lot of articles on the show as well that that look at the business world and corporate life and just employees and stuff and the different types of themes and trends in the workplace. And to me, it would seem that, you know, if we're not able to support our young people at the, the university college level to effectively deal with and move through some of the stuff that they're dealing with and, and develop those skill sets that maybe they're not they're not used to being in the situation that they're in, like you say. I mean, starting a new job and the pressures of all that and buying a home and being an adult, all the stuff that comes with that as well. I mean, a lot of these things can continue as we as we get older. So I think that, I mean, the work that you guys are, are doing and the service that you're offering is, is critical to minimize the impact that it has on people as they move on to the next stage of their life, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. And I think also our services are really complementary to what does exist on campus. Um, You know, it's a lot of pressure to try and provide counseling support or different mental health services for every student at a a very large university or even a small one. Um, And we also know different people might need different types of support. Maybe it's just in the moment having someone to talk to is enough to mitigate uh, what they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Maybe they do need something more ongoing. So I think, you know, we hear a lot from campus staff that 
they love Good to Talk, and it really almost takes the pressure off of them to know that when a student leaves their office, they can say, you know, if you have an issue, um, if you feel really panicked or anxious or concerned and it's three in the morning, here's someone you can talk to at any time of day. Yeah, I could see how that would be kind of the next line of, of defense. And I mean, a lot of people too, when they're feeling down or they're just dealing with something, maybe they don't feel like leaving their their place, their apartment to go somewhere. Maybe the weather's not very favorable and, and being able to call a hotline is so convenient. So, I mean, I know you guys aren't a parenting organization per se, but but this kind of comes up in my head just listening to our guest yesterday. You know, very articulate young lady, very smart, does well in life, comes from a good family, and yet she just, when, when this came up for her and she did go to a counselor, um, or, or I think it was a peer support uh, worker on, on Queens campus, who she found very helpful and affirming that, you know, you're not, you're not losing it. This is normal. Everything that you're going through is okay. We'll help you work through this. And yet she still felt this barrier to be able to tell her parents because she didn't want to have them think that something was wrong with her. Again, maybe this isn't a fair question because it's not your area, but I think it would be great if you could just speak to kind of what advice parents could glean from all the different, you know, it's a different culture, it's a different climate now, maybe for somebody that's in university than their parents at their age. So what do you think parents, if somebody, if a parent's listening right now? Yeah, that's a really uh, good point. And I think, you know, parents really, well, not being a parent myself, but I think for a lot of parents when their child maybe goes off to college or university, they do really want them to succeed um, and be independent, but again, still want to be there for them. So I think it is really helpful for parents to be aware of some services like Good to Talk or even what's available on campus um, to remind their children that those are there and that it is totally okay to use those services and that that's why they're available. Um, I think something that's been really interesting for me, again, kind of anecdotally, is if I'm on campus, promoting the helpline and I have like faculty people come up and ask about it, I'm always thinking, oh great, this is a chance to let them know about this service so they can share with their students. And like at least 50% of the time they say, oh, this is really great. You know, my child is at this college or a different university um, and I'm really glad to know of something that can support them. And so that's really been interesting for me to see that, you know, I think the parents really are um, aware of the pressures, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, and interested in learning about what they can share um, to sort of encourage the idea that it's okay to reach out, even if it's not to the parent themselves, that whoever you want to talk to, just talking to someone is good enough, even if it's not me. I found it interesting listening to our guest yesterday when she said, you know, once that barrier came down, once she told her parents, and she lives at home, and the first few days after telling them, they were, you know, they didn't understand and she was having, she didn't really know how to explain her feelings and really capture what she's been feeling. And so there was this disconnect between them. Eventually, after a few more conversations that the barrier came down and they were able to really have a a good conversation about it. And then really it became family affair in the sense that, you know, her and her mom went to chapters and grabbed a few books about anxiety and just taking it together as a team, if you will, to learn about this and learn about some of the sources of it and what we can do to, to work on it. And I thought that was great. Yeah, that's a really, a really nice positive story. And it's very dependent too on that individual parents, you know, own experiences. Um, 
and like culturally what they've been encouraged to talk about or not talk about in their lives. So I think it's a really great opportunity for, you know, young people and their parents to get to know each other more and, and be open and on about, honest about what they're dealing with. Megan, do you think there's anything else while we've got you on the line today that you'd like to share with our listeners? I think we've covered a lot of it. Um, maybe just our number, which is uh, Good Start, can be reached at one eight six six nine two five five four five four, or you can dial 211 uh, and ask for Good to Talk. That's great. Maybe we'd have you back in the future. Would you be willing to come on again? Yeah, that'd be lovely. It's been great talking to you. Okay. Thank you so much, Megan. Thanks. Whatever you're going through, we're here for you. We are the Peer Support Center, a confidential and non-judgmental drop-in space where you can come to talk to a fellow peer about anything at all. We have been supporting students at Queen's for at least 10 years now, and it wouldn't be the service we are today without the dedication and care of our amazing volunteers. We also wanted to thank you, Queen's. Thank you for all the students for trusting us over the years with your stories and experiences and allowing us to help support you during your time here at Queen's. University can be a challenging yet rewarding time, and we want students to know that we are here for them through the good times, the bad, and the in-between. Come stop by the Peer Support Center in JDUC Room 34. We are open seven days a week from noon to 10 p.m. It's now time for Music and the Mind, where we spotlight addiction, recovery, and the search for the natural high. So despite the fact that Adele is an extremely, extremely one of the most successful recording artists in the world, the London-born singer has had a long battle with anxiety. She said, I have anxiety attacks, constant panicking on stage. My heart feels like it's going to explode because I never feel like I'm going to deliver, ever, she told Q Magazine before explaining that she couldn't envision herself playing a festival or an arena show. The thought of an audience that big frightens the life out of me. She said, I'd hate to book a festival and have a freaking anxiety attack and then not go on stage. Despite this, Adele told Rolling Stone that she was inspired after meeting Beyonce to create an alter ego to help her deal with her anxiety. And according to the Daily Star, Singer also hired a therapist for some of her most recent touring uh, just to help her manage her anxiety attacks and panic attacks. So we are going to play a song by Adele this is called Turning Table. Close enough to start a war All that I have is on the floor You always say more 
CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. That was Adele with Turning Tables. We are now going to look at Joy Division. Ian Curtis. So he had depression, and he co-founded Joy Division in 1976. That is the year of my birth, actually. And as the band steadily gained notoriety, Curtis sank deeper and deeper into depression. His dissolving marriage and a diagnosis of epilepsy only made matters worse. As the band prepared for their first North American tour, Ian Curtis commits suicide. He died far too young, but he left behind a legacy that is still uh, remembered today. So we are going to play a song by Joy Division called Love Will Tear Us Apart. You are listening to... CFRC 101.9 FM 
and cfrc.ca. Joy Division with Love Will Tear Us Apart. CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. That was Joy Division with Love Will Tear Us Apart. We're now going to look at Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga has spent the entirety of her career being very open about all of her different life experiences. It's part of why she has a very devoted and large fan base. The singer has spoken out about her mental health on many different occasions. Talking to Billboard, she said she still has daily struggles. 
I've uh, suffered through depression and anxiety my entire life, she told Billboard. I just want these kids to know that 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 depth that they feel as human beings is normal. More recently, the singer explained how she's been on medication as part of her treatment. Gaga says, I take medication every day for mental illness and depression, and I don't feel bad about it, she said after a concert in, uh, or during a concert in 2014. Depression doesn't always, um, doesn't take away your talents. It just makes them harder to find. But I always find it. I learned that my sadness never destroyed what was great about me. You just have to go back to that greatness. Find that one little light that's left. I'm lucky I found one little glimmer stored away. That's Lady Gaga on her battles with depression. We are going to listen to a song now from Lady Gaga called Till It Happens to You. Till it 
CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. You are listening to Talk. We're now going to look at our last music feature for today, Canadian boy Justin Bieber. Now, I know Justin has a lot of mixed reviews in the world. He has a lot of fans around the globe. He is a megastar for sure. And he's done, I mean, anytime you see something that's happening in the media, we are all prone to forming opinions about who should and who shouldn't be doing what and at what time. But I think should give us pause for when we see people doing things that maybe we don't agree with or we think are hurtful or silly or whatever, the, whatever fill in the blank. The compassion for not fully understanding a person's story, that inspires me, I hope inspires you to look on my fellow man, my fellow woman, kids down the street, whoever, through a different lens and to just take a step back before I'm too so quick to cast judgment and just think there's probably a lot about that person that I don't actually know. So Justin Bieber, he's been in the last 18 months very outspoken about a number of different mental health challenges he's been going through. Uh, ahead of the re- release of his album Purpose, the... Star said that he struggled with the pressures of fame. He just wants people to know that he's human. He says, I'm struggling just to get through the days. I think a lot of people are. You get lonely, you know, you were on the road. People see the glam, the amazing stuff, but they don't know the other side of it. This life can rip you apart. This year, the Love Yourself singer made the decision that he could no longer partake in fan meet and greets. Bieber says, I'm going to be canceling my meet and greets I enjoy meeting such incredible people, but I end up feeling so drained and filled with so much of other people's spiritual energy that I end up drained and unhappy. He says, I want to make people smile and happy, but not at my expense. And I always leave feeling mentally and emotionally exhausted to the point of depression. The pressure of meeting people's expectations of what I'm supposed to be is so much for me to handle and a lot on my shoulders. I never want to disappoint, but I feel I would rather give you, my fans, the show and my albums as promised. I can't tell you how sorry I am and wish it wasn't so hard on me. I want to stay in the health, in a healthy mindset I'm in in order to give you the best show that you've ever seen. So, I mean, he has a tremendous commitment to his fans, and that's a great example of a public person, a megastar, setting healthy boundaries in his life uh, in a really, a really good way. So we are going to listen to an older song by Justin Bieber. I remember when this came out. I watched the movie. I was inspired by that movie, that first movie. 
I mean, I'm a 41-year-old man today. When I watched that movie, it was not that long ago. And I remember just thinking, regardless of whether you like the music or not, or what, what have you, what your favorite genre is, just looking at the incredible rise of what he was doing and sitting downtown Stratford with a guitar at a very young age playing on the streets. And I mean, it's very, very inspiring. So we need to support everybody, including our Canadian boy, Justin Bieber. So here is somebody to love. Is she 
Tune in every Thursday at 3 p.m. to hear the YGK Breakout on CFRC 101.9 FM or CFRC.ca. You'll hear from local artists, Queen's University artists, and a wide range of stories from bands in the area. Learn more about our local up-and-comers on the YGK Breakout on CFRC. On CFRC 101.9 FM every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 p.m., you'll hear Finding a Voice. My name is Bruce, host of that poetry-focused spoken word program. On it, you'll hear local readings and events, occasionally telephone interviews across Canada, and always a touch of music. Again, Finding a Voice, here every Friday from 4 to 6 p.m. Check it out. Telephone Aid Line Kingston is a crisis, distress, befriending, and information listening service based in Kingston. Talk is confidential, non-judgmental, and anonymous. We are a safe place to call when you don't know where to turn. To reach our aid line between 7 p.m. and 3 a.m., call 613-544-1771. For volunteering information, please email talkrecruitment at gmail.com. Hello, I'm Tamara Cicerella, a counselor serving area residents who live with addictions or mental health concerns. Deeply committed workers like me assist people in reaching their recovery goals. On April 1st, Addictions and Mental Health Services in Kingston and Frontenac joins Lennox and Addington in offering confidential, quality services. Addictions Mental Health Services, Kingston, Frontenac, Lennox, and Addington is committed to providing the best possible services to all who need it. For more information in Kingston and Frontenac, call 613-544-1356 or in Lennox and Addington, 613-354-7388. This has been another edition of Talk with Timmy G on CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. If you have any questions or feedback or would like to be featured on the show, please email me at info at That's info at timothydgauther.com. Every Thursday from 7 to 8.30, I facilitate a free drop-in group called MindWell. It's a support group for anybody dealing with burnout, stress, anxiety. Again, that's every Thursday from 7 to 8.30. Address 1111 Taylor Kidd Boulevard at St. Paul the Apostle. Until next week, be smart, be safe. This show is produced in collaboration with CFRC at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, with infrastructure support from Queen's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Find more great podcasts at podcasts.cfrc.ca.